You're listening to Fit in Focus, a podcast from Fitbit, where we talk about all things health and wellness, from the science and business of health to what motivates people on their own health journey. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Fit in Focus. I'm Eric Friedman, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Andrew Holing. Today, our guest is Harley Pasternak, a fitness trainer and nutritionist with over 30 years of experience in the industry. We're covering all sorts of great topics with Harley today, from fitness and nutrition tips to how to interpret the latest science of health. We'll also be chatting about how to keep your whole family healthy and motivated. We'll also debunk some fitness and nutrition myths and hear from Harley about what trends in health and wellness you should pay attention to and which you should avoid. Harley, uh, welcome to the program. Um, as you get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, you know, how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, so I'm from Canada. I'm born and raised in Canada, and I was a hockey player. Went to school to play hockey and and ended up uh, getting hurt and uh, pursuing the academic side. So I spent 10 years in university. I did degrees in exercise science and nutritional science, and then graduate school in nutrition and exercise physiology. And I was working towards my PhD, and I got recruited by the military, where I ran what was nicknamed the superhuman lab for three years. So we made soldiers run faster, jump higher, stay awake longer. It was an amazing experience. And while I did that, I started a a personal training business in Toronto that catered to all the Hollywood uh, actors that came to Canada to shoot films. And I worked on all the worst films ever made you can ever imagine from Wrong Turn and Angel Eyes and Cold Creek Man or anything bad. Um, And as the business grew, uh, we expanded from Toronto to Montreal to Vancouver and created a niche with superheroes. So I got Catwoman ready and Green Hornet ready and Spider-Man and X-Men and all the different superheroes and uh, started writing books about it. Went on Oprah many, many years ago and I think seven books later and uh, a lot of interesting clients later, here I am. That's a wide range of clients throughout your career with, I'm sure, very varying fitness goals like cardio versus trying to bulk up. Is how you train the same for all these different goals? No. And there's sort of this Venn diagram, right? So am I working with someone for health, for performance, or for aesthetic physique? And there is, there are places where, you know, two of them might overlap and even where all three might overlap, but that's a very small space. So the way that I get someone to eat, the way I get someone to move, um, is all about specific adaptations against imposed demands. So I need to expose them to things that they need to be good at doing. So if someone needs to, uh, train for aerobic activity, we have them do long exhaustive bouts of cardiovascular. If someone uh, needs to be really strong. We have them, you know, train in a certain way. If someone just needs to look like they have good endurance and look like they're strong, it's a very different way that we would work with them. And, and so, kind of building on that, most people would assume that you look good, you must be healthy, or you've got, you know, great endurance, you must be healthy. Why would those not overlap? It's often the opposite, you know, whether it be for for women, these uh, physique uh, dysmorphia, men have a lot of physique dysmorphia that's not talked about a lot because it's not macho. But when you look at the great uh, actors of the 80s and 90s for male actors, these role models we had, the Schwarzeneggers, the Stallones, all these guys, um, I think it goes without saying is there was some degree of performance enhancement used, maybe some pharmaceuticals, extreme dieting, overtraining, um, so 
just because someone looks really fit or healthy on the outside, on the inside might not tell the same tale. And if someone's a, a, an endurance athlete, a marathoner, they might have no meniscus left on either knee and, and, you know, they're two years away from a hip replacement. So I think extremes with physiques often are, um, lead to some kind of uh, orthopedic or health issue as a result of taking it to an extreme. You mentioned dieting. I know some people who are all about the physical aspect of getting in shape and others who are super focused on diets and nutrition. How do those two overlap? Um, well, that's a, that's a good question. There is a, a very well-accepted theory on calories in versus calories out. So the more you burn and the less you take in, then you lose weight. Um, and conversely, if someone's trying to gain weight, you want to burn less and eat more. So, uh, while there's a million diets in South Beach and Zone and Atkins and Pritikin and Jenny Craig and Slim Fast and all of them, perhaps the, the two overarching themes that they all have are this idea of structure, um, and making you really aware of what you're eating and how much you're eating. And the second part is promoting physical activity. So, um, you know, and if you sort of see the diets in the last 15, 20 years, the one thing they all have in common is really about low sugar. Some are low carbohydrate, um, but we know from looking at the health and longevity of countries like Japan and Singapore and Italy that low carb is not necessarily any healthier for you. It's the type of carbs um, and specifically sugar. So if we can reduce sugar, we're, we're dramatically transforming health. And by sugar, you specifically mean like a ref highly refined sugar. In this case, highly refined sugar, taking it out of its natural state. You know, no one's getting fat eating apples and blackberries. But when you start making apple juice and uh, putting some high fructose corn syrup over your blackberries, it changes everything. And, and I'm just curious, you know, there's various articles that seem to like, you know, things like red wine, which alcohol or straight to sugar, um, being good for you, not good for you, obviously moderation. But uh, where, where do you stand on that? No one is going to live a shorter life because they didn't have enough alcohol. It's, it's not an essential nutrient. Um, like a lot of other foods, um, there are funds created by the growers of grapes, um, vineyards, uh, whether it be the California Almond Board or the, um, the blueberry growers of America or whatever it is, they all put together these funds for marketing and for funding different research and research looking out for positive, possible positive health benefits associated with consuming that food, wine being one. And I think in the 90s, we started to see some things published on red wine can be heart healthy. And then we found out from more research, it actually wasn't about the red wine, it was about the alcohol. And then as we find out later, there's just really an optimal amount that if you have more than one and a half glasses a day, it actually makes you die earlier. And then we found out later that actually what the alcohol is doing is making you relax for a short period of time, but it's also destroying your sleep and then you end up gaining weight. So there's this spiral that goes around about um, the information we're getting. Uh, I don't think you need alcohol. I think alcohol is not good for you. Um, and, uh, and, and you can live a very long, healthy life without it. We're talking a lot about the different trends that we see in nutrition. So what's what's the one piece of nutrition advice that you'd give Harley to someone who's looking to get more healthy and get more fit? Where do they start and kind of what should they focus on in terms of their diet? I think if there's one thing that they do, literally one thing, it's to make sure that they don't have more than 30 grams of refined sugar a day. I think that should trump everything. Um, and if you cut out someone's sugar, not only are you reducing some calories, you know, there's only four grams of 
of uh, four calories per gram of sugar, but you're changing your hormone profile in your body, your, your insulin sensitivity, your A1Cs will change, your blood sugar levels on a chronic level will change. And if you look at syndrome X, which is what we talk about as diabetes, heart disease, cancer, all of those are significantly impacted by sugar consumption. So the reduction of sugar intake will affect your weight, your insulin sensitivity, uh, hopefully reduce your chance of becoming obese uh, and getting diabetes and heart disease as a byproduct. And I, I mean, I feel like a balanced diet is always kind of the best place to be, but there's so many diet trends out there. There's, there's keto, there's intermittent fasting, which I know you have thoughts on. What are kind of your thoughts on some of those trends? What are the ones that you'd like to see maybe like go away and never be talked about again? Um, and which ones maybe do you think could have benefits some people, if any? So do you have kids? No, I don't. Okay. Okay. Eric, do you have kids? I have got two young kids at home. How old? Uh, four and seven. Okay. So I have the same four and six and a half. Um, would you want your kids to go on an intermittent fasting diet? Uh, no, but it's interesting. A lot of cultures seem to actually have them in part of those cultural realistic things going back historically. So there's always a the question is, are they good or not? Would you want your kids <laughs> to fast between 7 p.m. and 2 p.m. every day? Uh, no, my kids get hangry after fasting for an hour. So Right. Would you want to put your kids on a zero, on a keto diet? to make sure they stay away from carrots, no red peppers, tomatoes are the devil. Would you want them to avoid those things? Uh, we always take a colorful approach to diet. So like the more colors on the plate, as long as it's not Skittles or M&Ms is a good thing. Right. That's, that's a good, good bit of information. I think before anyone begins an eating lifestyle or some supplement or whatever it is, ask yourself if you're a parent or an aunt or an uncle, would you want your kids to eat like this? Would you want your kids to have that weird chromium picolinate supplement? You know, would you want your kids to remove all colorful vegetables from your diet because they might have too much natural sugars? And the answer is usually no. And so if you wouldn't want your kids to eat a certain way, why would you? And that's the first part of it. The second is every diet works. Every single diet works for some mm -hmm. people and for a period of time. But what's the drawback? You know, so if it's intermittent fasting, you're really, really hungry and you're probably in the ketosis state because you haven't eaten for a while. You probably have breath, bad breath that comes with, um, with fasting and what comes with ketosis. Um, we look at the, the definitive uh, and longstanding research on intermittent fasting, otherwise known as Ramadan. Mm -hmm. And you have a billion people or more who fast all day and only eat at sundown for 30 straight days. And the average person during Ramadan doesn't lose weight. They actually gain weight because it comes back to it's how much you eat and what you eat. That's all that it comes down to. And if you need to block off hours of the day because you can't control what you eat and how much you eat and intermittent, intermittent fasting works for you, so be it. It's not really about all the cellular things that happen during intermittent fasting. It's about if there's less time in the day to eat, you're most likely going to have less time to eat and therefore less food to eat. But um, it's what you eat and how much you eat. I actually think that brings up a really interesting point. So, you know, one of the things that's cool with Fitbit is we've got, you know, there's tens of millions of active users and we see like, yes, we're all similar, but we're also, there's also a snowflake. Like we're all similar and very different at the same time. Um, you know, for example, we've seen people when they, you know, some people drinking a shot of um, olive oil, we see that impacting certain things about their physiology and certain people not impacting them. How do you kind of 
How do you encourage your clients to self-experiment? Or do you? It's a, good, it's a good question. The snowflake analogy is great, but I would go to the fact that if you take any snowflake, regardless of how different it is, and you put it in fire, it's going to melt and turn to water and eventually to steam. So there's, there's certain governing scientific found fundamentals that um, apply to almost every single one of us and in almost every single one of us the exact same way, almost. So there is some variety. There is some differences amongst people. Some people have food allergies. Some people have higher hormones of certain levels, but we're all still at 99.9999999999% the same. Um, so I think that's one thing we have to keep in mind. Everyone's like, well, my metabolism is different. Your metabolism may be different. And if someone has a metabolism that's 2% slower than someone else, that's a big difference. And that could explain for a difference in someone being 15 pounds heavier than someone else, given they're eating the same and moving the same. But it doesn't explain that someone is 100 pounds more than someone else or 50 pounds more than someone else. It has nothing to do with their metabolism. So I think um, really understanding what fundamentals apply to everybody and then understanding the small variations that certain people have. But I think a big part of that variation is not just about the physiology, but it's about the psychology. And some people have willpower and some people don't. And some people like structure and some people don't. And I think that's even more important, the psychological differences between people than the physiological differences. I couldn't agree more that the psychology plays a huge role. Um, you know, structure versus non-structure, that's sort of, it's so, it seems somewhat innate. How do you give someone willpower? You don't. I, I don't believe you give someone willpower. I don't even believe you can motivate people. I think every human nature is is everyone wants to be better. That's human nature. That's just part of, of of you know Darwinian evolution is that we are constantly thriving to be better, uh, faster, stronger, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think that's something that does not need to be taught. But what happens is life gets in the way. Someone wants to look great and be in great shape, and but they don't have time, um, or uh, they don't know how to cook or uh, they don't have access to a gym. So all of these are roadblocks that get in the way of them having that natural motivation that we all have and actually doing something about it. Um, and there are other psychological components to that as well. I'm oversimplifying it, but you get the idea. So what my job I'd like to think for the last 28 years in practice is I don't motivate people. I educate people and I give people a toolbox. And different tools help different people in different circumstances. So, for example, when Fitbit came out, that, that was a tool in my toolbox that completely took away the excuses that a lot of people have and the roadblocks between them wanting to get in great shape and actually getting in great shape. You know, hey, I don't, I don't have time to get to the gym. I don't care. I want you to hit 12,000 steps a day. Check your Fitbit. It'll say that. They're like, wow, okay. Um, well, I don't have time to block off for you know, an hour aerobic session to hit that step goal. You don't need to just walk, go for a walk. You know, I have an injury. doesn't matter. Walk. You can walk with, mo with most injuries. So I think removing those roadblocks through um, educating people, giving people uh, certain tools, whether it be equipment, technology, education, are, is really important between the gap between them wanting to look and feel great and actually doing something about it. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's really interesting. For example, we see in our data, you know, there's the average user and there's a magical spike at 10,000 steps, which is purely because that was the default goal of Fitbit and then everyone drove towards that goal. Um, but it's interesting that it doesn't motivate everybody. Um, 
for people who just really do have trouble getting motivated. They, they want, they like the idea of changing, but they don't want to do the hard work. What is the first step they could take? I think literally that the first step they could take is the first step. And I think, you know, and I start all my clients with, uh, with a Fitbit because before I tell them how to change their life or what to do, I want to understand what their current life looks like. How active or inactive are they right now? And I giving them a Fitbit, I know exactly right away. How much or how well or how poorly are they sleeping? I know that I'm going to know that right away. So I think um, the first step someone can take uh, f- for me is getting someone a Fitbit because that gives us uh, a sense as to where we are. Before we, we, we need to know where we're going, we need to know where we are. So if someone comes to me and they're doing 4,000 steps a day, I'm not going to say, okay, let's get you to do 10,000 steps a day. That's too big of a gap and we're setting them up for failure. I might say, we're going to increase your daily step count by a thousand a day. Uh, and we're going to up that every five days. So at the end of the month or in a month and a half, all of a sudden they are at 10,000 steps a day and they did that gradually and they didn't burn out and we didn't turn them off of the process. So the first thing you should do really is get a Fitbit. It gives you a sense as to where you are, and then it can help you incrementally get to where you need to be. What's the biggest tip or or the biggest tips that you would give people who are struggling to stay on track with their fitness and health? When you give people structure, so when I work with people, I give them what's called the My Five. So there's five things they need to be doing, really four things they need to be doing every single day. And these are all empirical goals. They're easy to measure. So I say, okay, I want you to do 12,000 steps a day, at least seven hours of quality sleep a night, unplug from technology at least an hour a day, and eat protein and fiber five times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and a snack between each. So those are, those are empirical goals. They know whether they've succeeded at each one of those each day. So none of them require a coach. None of them require any form of, um, of skills. Um, so to the extent that they're able to achieve those things on a daily basis, they're a success before they go to bed each night. Did I do that? Yep. Check, 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 check. Oh, I'm at 11,200 steps. Before I go to bed, I'm just going to go downstairs and upstairs four or five times. And then I'm going to go to bed smiling ear to ear because I did everything I need to do. So I think having structure, having structure with goals that are, that are really easy to understand and very attainable, um, hitting those goals every day or as many days as you can it aggregates into fantastic results that are sustainable and that you can do independently without help. And so I, I love the, the, the five, uh, and I think you've written a number of books about, you know, these, these five things. It was interesting, like some of them are almost expected and some things like, you know, stopping technology is less expected. What are the whys behind each of those fives? So the, the first being the steps, um, I took a year off my practice nine years ago, I think. Um, I wanted to understand why the rest of the world is so much healthier than we are here in the U S what are they doing different? They don't have 24 hour fitness and they don't have Suzanne Summers on an infomercial at two in the morning, but they're living 10 years longer than us. They have less obesity, diabetes, and many cancers and heart disease. So I traveled to understand what are they cooking? What ingredients are they using? How do they eat their food and how do they burn their calories? And I found of the 10 healthiest countries in the world, they have very little in common. They really have two things in common, but one of them is they all take at least 11,000 steps a day. So when you look at Japan, when you look at Australia, you look at Sweden, Switzerland, um, these people walk. And the average American was taking 4,200 steps a day at the time. So 
uh, you know, that's 25 miles a week, every single week. That's 1200 miles a year uh, that, that someone walks more than someone else. Forget about food. They're going to look and feel very different. They're going to live a lot longer as a byproduct of doing so. So that's why the first of the steps. The second was sleep. We're supposed to be sleeping one third of our life. We are sleeping not only less, but less quality than we ever have. And a lot of that's driven by technology and screen time. So we know that uh, sleeping is heavily tied to, number one, how active you are the next day. If you wake up exhausted, you're less likely going to want to walk to work. The next is um, there are many hormones that are affected by lack of quality sleep, like ghrelin and leptin, uh, cortisol, and all of these impact our appetite, our metabolism, um, and our, our immune system, amongst others. So getting enough quality sleep, I think, is, is, is essential and giving people that goal and the ability to graph and chart how good and how long someone slept with a Fitbit, I think, was, for me, the biggest game changer, even more than counting someone's steps, is really making them own their sleep and fixing it. The third is unplugging from technology, at least in our day, and we know that screen time is heavily tied to inactivity. It's tied to snacking more, making poor food choices, uh, uh, and the blue light plays havoc with our sleep and our moods. The fourth is food. Um, obviously, we know the impact of our diet on our health. So giving people simple structure um, and not basing it off of one interesting study that just came out that showed that eating this one superfood does something, but really looking at the body of evidence. And yes, there was, you know, there was finally just the first study done on intermittent fasting with human beings on a meaningful level with a certain sample size. And it found that after 12 weeks of someone doing intermittent fasting versus eating normally, there was no difference. So let's not look at, at one study that showed intermittent fasting was beneficial. Let's look at the thousands of studies looking at grazing over gorging. And so using that macro bit of evidence or mass of evidence, um, making people eat with a way that's very universally accepted and simple and accessible and enjoyable. So that's how we got to those four. The fifth is resistance exercise, push something, pull something, lift something. So it's strengthening our muscles, our connective tissues, our bones, the hormone benefits that come along with resistance exercise. And looking at resistance exercise differently than we historically have, the idea that you have to go to a gym, a building designed to weight train with machines for weight training, and it needs to be there for at least an hour, and you need to do this on an ongoing basis. So I've really simplified it, and I think COVID's helped with that, where you can pick literally one exercise a day for one body part and a different body part each day of the week. So a different exercise each day of the week and get almost everything you need, if not more, by really simplifying the resistance component to your workouts. And so something you did not mention there is kind of the mental health happiness aspect. Um, does it play a role? And well, actually, let's start with that. Does it play a role? Yeah. So all those things play a dramatic role in someone's emotional state and psychological well-being, whether it be walking for me is meditation. I mean, that's really my meditation. Um, my resistance exercise is sort of my catharsis. And there's a lot of very positive uh, hormonal neurotransmitter things that happen when you resistance exercise. Uh, unplugging from screen time, we know screen time is not good for your mental health. And making sure that you're eating properly and having all the right nutrients you need is also really good for mental health. And feeling like you have a sense of control. You know, there's a lot happening in the world today that's out of our control, but we control how much we eat, what we eat, and when we eat. You talked about um, 
uh, resistance training, I want to get into the fitness aspect of this a little bit. What are what are some of the exercises that you'd recommend for people like really starting to want to get in shape? Is it lift? I mean, I've heard so much now, like don't do cardio, lift weights instead. Do do cardio. It's good for your health. Don't lift weights. Like what should people be starting with in fitness to, to get their health on track? So I think, first of all, people have to understand that there's two kinds of physical activity and they're both mm-hmm. essential. You know, it's like a plant is growing. Do you need light or do you need water? You need right. both. And so one of them, um, people used to call cardio or aerobic activity. I just call it Mm -hmm. steps. So you need to hit your daily step goal minimum. Now, the more you do kind of the better, you know, to some, to some extent, you don't want to do too many and then be tired the next day, but that needs to happen. That's, that's every day. The second part of it, the strength training resistance exercise is a lot like antibiotics. You need to be very specific with the frequency, the duration, the, the intensity of it. And so if a doctor says, take one pill a day for the next 10 days, and you're like, oh, I'm going to take five a day for the next two days, not only will it not work as well, but it might backfire and actually make you sick. And the same thing with antibiotics applies to resistance Mm -hmm. exercise. If someone says, I want you to do squats uh, on Monday and then a different exercise Tuesday and a different one Wednesday, and you're like, I want great legs. I'm going to do squats every day. Not only will that not give you your result, but you'll end up with tendonitis or some, some worse injury. So I think people have to understand that there's two different kinds of physical activity. They need them both and for different reasons. One of the things I wanted to see up for, I think with you and Eric is interesting. You both talked about having kids. Um, I know hardly you with your kids. I see you on Instagram all the time, exercising, getting active. I mean, I think your son can maybe like lift more than me at this, at this stage. <laughs> Tell me how you instill good habits of working out with, with your kids and what advice do you have for, for other parents out there to get that started? Live the life you want your kids to live. So if you don't want your kids to eat too much sugar and they see you knocking back a bowl of Lucky Charms at night, it's, it's, why would your kids listen to you? Why are they not going to have Lucky Charms? If not now, maybe later, as soon as they have access to them mm-hmm. on their own. Um, if you want your kids to be active, they have to see that you're active as well. So I think um, it's all great to put your kids in different after school programs and, and get them coaches and, and all kinds of stuff. But for you to spend time with your kids and do those things with them, um, it normalizes them, normalizes those behaviors and choices so that they make, um, similar ones. I, you know, I tell everyone, my, my poor kids, I mean, they don't even have a chance. And when they were two coming to visit me at work, you know, I'd walk into the gym and my, my son is two is using a TRX thing, figured it out on his own. And, and my daughter is on an elliptical machine. I never taught her how to use it, but she's there and she sees this is my office and these are daddy's toys. And so they knew that at two years old. So, um, live the life you want your kids to live. So Harley, I'm interested to hear how has your fitness, um, routine changed since COVID-19? Are you getting the same number of steps? Same number of steps. Um, I would say I golf more now than I did before COVID because I don't have to travel. It gives me more golf time. And golf is an automatic 14,000 steps, 18 holes, 14,000 steps right away. So I know, you know, around a golf means I can be lazy the rest of the day. And, and uh, I'm curious, your kids, same number of steps for them or? Yeah. So, the, uh, they're really, really active. My, my daughter loves walking with my wife and I, my son hates walking, but he'll run anywhere. So it's interesting. They have different body types and, and, uh, different, uh, um, <laughs> desires on how fast to move, but both take a lot of steps. Yeah. 
you know, it's fascinating. I was watching my sons playing like at a dog park. I'm like, the way they, they're playing chase with each other, it's just like the dogs who are playing chase. It's uh, similar types of mo- movements. Exactly. And I'm, I mean, I've played sports for years, so I'm just a walking injury. You know, I have a bad back and this and that. And so my goal is just to stay healthy enough to keep up with my kids. So uh, on that front, uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, when you're looking at diets, would you have your kid do it as a kind of a filter? Does the same thing apply to exercise? Yeah, I think their bodies are not able to, or, or yet should not be exposed to resistance exercise yet. They're, you know, four and six, and they have growth plates that still will be sealing later on in life. And I don't want to expedite that or damage a growth plate. But yeah, my kids do, uh, my daughter does dance, um, and my kids both do yoga. And, um, and there's some basic strength movements that I have them do as well. They both do push-ups and they both do hip thrusts and they, they do planks and, uh, they can do jump squats. So, um, they do this stuff. I I don't give them heavy weights or anything, but, uh, I will. Um, I started weight training at 12. So I think, you know, if done properly, we used to think in the sixties and seventies, it could stunt your growth, but we now know if done properly, it can actually stimulate your growth when done properly and at the right times of adolescence. And we find again with in, in the Fitbit data that you know when people have someone they're uh, working with or they're doing something with, um, it motivates them to move more. Like you know, the first friend you add in Fitbit takes a step up. How can people actually leverage their kids to get themselves more active? And do, do, do you find you inspire your kids or the other way around? I think both. I think um, you know, getting kids to walk at a young age is so important. They need to know that that's how you get from point A to point B. Walking is not exercise. Walking is just an essential form of transportation. So we've chosen to live our life in a location that almost everything's walkable. My office is walkable. Their kids' school is almost walkable. We walk. We're a walking family. So so to that end, it's very very normalized to them. and then on the other hand, there's times when my son wants to play all these games that involve sprinting and running and tag and hiding and, and that, that forces me to move when I don't want to move. Yeah. And, and I'm curious, maybe you can sit up to be in our house. Uh, we always have the debate of wheels versus walking in our house. Like, can I ride my bike? Can I ride my scooter or can we, or do we have to walk? Uh, do you have that debate in your house or, uh, or is that any type of movement is fine? Um, <clears throat> that's a good question. We get them to walk as much as they can on the bikes. Look, it's definitely being physically active, but it's not the same as bearing their own weight and getting bone density at a young age and being active and um, and being being really present. I'm also super scared. Maybe it's different where you live, but we don't live in a great bicycle riding area. I mean, there's a lot of cars and I would worry for their safety and my safety. Yeah, well, for me, it's my safety. It's like the kids are... Fast enough where uh, I have to run to go with them, but not fast enough that I can bike with them. That that puts real strain on my heart. Uh, probably, yeah, probably in a good way. Exactly. Um, going back, you 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 talked a lot about uh, sleep and the importance of sleep. Yep. Um, can can you walk through like you know what is the interplay between sleep, diet, and um, Activity because a lot of people kind of will sacrifice one for the other. And like there's often that tension that we find with our users. Yeah, I would say getting enough, getting quality sleep trumps getting quantity sleep. 
So, you know, there's people who sleep 10 hours a night, wake up exhausted because they have sleep apnea or, or whatever the issues they have. And there's other people that sleep five hours a night, wake up and, and feel like a million bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, I think making sure you get your quality, getting at least deep, three deep sleep cycles a night, making sure you're not restless too much. Um, there's not too much awakefulness. Um, I, I think being in touch with your quality of sleep, I think is really, really important. And then gradually increasing your quantity of sleep. Um, the impact on sleep, as I mentioned, number one, if you don't sleep well enough or long enough, you're less likely to want to move the next day. Um, your immune system might be more vulnerable and compromised. Um, your ghrelin and leptin, the two hormones that number one control fat metabolism, the other one carbohydrate appetite, uh, and blood sugar are both negatively impacted. So, um, sleep controls all of it and vice versa. Uh, making enough physical activity, weaving it into your day can actually help you sleep better. And you mentioned deep sleep. Like that's when your body's really getting restored and, and healing itself, whether it be from a workout or from fighting a disease. Um, sleep is also one of those things that's more trickier to coach people on. Uh, you know, it's easier to kind of consciously control your diet or your exercise and is your sleep. Uh, do you have free pointers used for your clients? Yeah, number one, no caffeine in the afternoons. I'm a big advocate of caffeine, but I try not to have it after one o'clock. Um, alcohol is the most commonly used sleep aid in the world, and it is the worst thing you can possibly do for your sleep. If you wear a Fitbit um, to sleep after you've had alcohol, you'll notice there's really no deep sleep happening. It's it's pretty crazy. Um, I think uh, staying away from screen time within an hour of bedtime is really, really important. We know that that has a a negative impact on sleep when you have screen time just before bed. Um, and then there's personalized things. So finding the right pillow for you. Uh, if you grind your teeth wearing a night guard, um, if, if you know, you've got ambient noise that interrupts you sleeping with a, a earplugs or with a, a white machine, a white noise. So I think there's certain things you can do that, that help you. And if you continue to have sleep issues, having a sleep test done and maybe you might have sleep apnea and you need a CPAP device or uh, like me, I've got arthritis in my lower back. So that keeps me up throughout the night. So whatever I can do to help treat the arthritis helps. And you mentioned caffeine a few times. Uh, it sounds like you're, you're opposed to it in the afternoon, but uh, not as a general rule. Uh, does it have any helpful benefits or is it just something like, hey, it's a narcotic, but it's okay in small quantities? There's been literally thousands of studies done on caffeine. Um, not one of them has shows, shows any health detriments associated with moderate caffeine consumption. In fact, there's a great number of studies that shows that moderate amounts of caffeine is actually very healthy for you and helps with liver function and reduces the symptoms of Parkinson's and delays the onset of Alzheimer with people with genetic predispositions and, and helps with fat metabolism and, and a lot of other things. So uh, caffeine used, uh, responsibly is very good, um, and, and can, can help your quality of life if abused, or if you're throwing cream and sugar in your coffee, then that's another issue altogether. And, and so, and so kind of that, yeah, no, I'm fascinated by how, how little and how much we know about the human body and like, you know, caffeine and all these things are various additives. We're kind of mixing to the chemical soup that, that is us. And then how we react. Um, you and I have time to read lots of articles and kind of distill our own opinion. Where do you recommend people go for kind of health facts? Because there's so much 
headline news stories, whether it be generated by, you know, the wine board that you reference or the almond board or things like that, how do you kind of separate the wheat from the chaff? It's harder than ever. The internet has democratized information, yeah. but certain information should not be democratized, right? So um, if you look, the number one place that people are getting fitness and nutrition advice today are not from people who went to university uh, to study exercise science or nutritional science or dietitians. Uh, they're from celebrities. They're from Instagram um, influencers. Um, or they're from the hippie guy uh, who surfs and tells people that acai berry is all you need to eat. So it's really a tough time. Um, I write a monthly blog, uh, Fitbit's homepage. Um, I like to think that I write, uh, very, uh, responsibly using peer reviewed scientific journal information. I think for me, I go to uh, the source. So I go to pubmed.com, P-U-B-M-E-D.com, and that's the National Library, Library of Medicine's database. And so if you go in there and you want to type in um, uh, impact of acai berry on, a, on health, every study ever done that's been peer-reviewed and published in a journal, uh, which means it's neutral information for the most part, it's not perfect, but it's pretty good, um, is in there. And you can read for yourself. And, and you don't have to read the whole study, just look at the abstract. And, you know, did it work or didn't it work? Is it worth doing or not worth doing? That's probably the best place to go. Yeah, no, and I, I think that, that finally, that, that last bit said one of the most critical takeaways, like, ignore the headlines from the uh, New York Times. Go read, the, go read the stuff on PubMed. Read the top and the end of the article, the conclusion at the top, and you've got the whole thing. You can skip the middle. Uh, it is critical. It, exactly. And, and look, whether it be something you read on BuzzFeed or Yahoo Health, remember, you're not reading uh information you're reading the writer's interpretation uh based on their current biases or their ability to understand research you're reading what they think you're you're not reading firsthand information that also really connects to a question i have to have what advice would you give people on finding a trainer or a nutritionist like with that in mind if you want to make sure you're focusing on someone who has the facts isn't going to just come to me and say do a keto diet like what advice do you have for for people to use when picking a trainer or nutritionist to help them out one is i would say never take nutrition advice from a trainer yeah and okay. i know you're saying well i'm a trainer i know but i'm a trainer but i also my background is in more nutrition, than that yes so, <laughs> um so don't don't take nutrition advice from medical doctors don't take nutrition advice from personal trainers don't take them from dentists that's not to say that medical doctors are not knowledgeable mm -hmm but they're not knowledgeable in the field of nutrition. They're not trained in the field of nutrition. Now, there's a small exception. My friend Melina, uh, she heads up a, a group of medical doctors in the US that actually have a fellowship in uh, dietetics. Mm -hmm. it's, that's, a, that's the exception, and it's a very small group. But your family doctor, uh, your endocrinologist, your whoever may they be, they may be very smart people, and they know a lot about their particular field of medicine, but they are as educated in nutrition as they are in carpentry. It's a different field altogether. Right. Um, I think with a personal trainer, there was a time when I started off very idealistic where I said, okay, I have you know, multiple degrees in exercise science, so everyone I hire needs to have at least a university degree in exercise physiology or kinesiology and a graduate degree in exercise physiology or kinesiology or health sciences. That doesn't exist, especially in Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> so... I would say find somebody who at the very least 
is certified by the American College of Sports Medicine or the National Strength and Conditioning Association. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, someone who is keeps up to date with their uh, CECs and CEUs, their, their education credits, mm-hmm. their insurance is up to date, their uh, CPR and first aid is up to date. They're uh, experienced. They're, it's not their first year working in a gym. Um, and that you connect with each other. Yeah. And that um, they don't try and sell you things like supplements or, or, you know, or silly things like that. So I think that's really what you need to do with nutrition. It has to be someone who has a university degree, minimum four-year university degree in nutritional sciences, and then either a graduate degree in nutritional sciences or a clinical internship um, in dietetics. So that's what you need. Well, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate the time you spent talking with us. Um, is there any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I would say build your toolbox. And the toolbox is partially educating yourself consistently and constantly educating yourself on food and fitness and sleep. The toolbox also is your Fitbit in it. Toolbox is a comfortable pair of shoes. The more comfortable your feet are, the more likely you are to walk and move and hit those steps. Take the stairs and not the elevator if your feet are happy. Um, a blender, I'm a big fan of, of blending. Uh, the number one reason people give for not eating well is they don't have time. Mm-hmm. So wh- whatever that meal of the day is for you, you don't have time. It takes you 90 seconds to make a smoothie or a soup or a dip or something simple. So, so build your build your toolbox up, your success toolbox up. And with time, that box might grow and grow. And um, as you become more advanced, you might need different tools in it. But start off with those three tools. And um, I think you'll be fine. That's good. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was really great chatting with you. Yeah, thanks, Harley. Really appreciate it. Thanks.